Why would you look outside yourself when you have all of the world inside? One, two, three, four. This is the Prying Priest Podcast, and I'm Father Yuri Hladio. You're listening to the first half of an unedited interview about the personal stories of amazing people and why they have come to believe what they do. The second half of these interviews are reserved for patrons only. If you like this show, visit my website, pryingpriest.com, for more content and to learn how you can become a patron of the show. Enjoy the first half of this interview. Hello, Dr. Brian Butcher. Welcome to the Prime Priest Podcast. Thank you so much, Oche. Christ is born. Glorify him. We are still in the season of Christmas, at least for uh, old calendar uh, old calendar Christians. No, and... you're great for everybody because uh, 40 days from Christmas from December 25th takes us to February 1st. So it's uh, extended Christmas season for uh, Gregor- Gregorian calendar and all the right, way right. to February 15th, 14th for uh, those on the uh, Julian calendar. Right. So that would be the tradition of basically celebrating, like using Christmas hymns and Christmas greetings all the way until the, the feast of the meeting of the Lord in the temple. Exactly. Right? And, yeah, and yeah. surely in this COVID times we need all the occasions to celebrate and be joyful that we can get don't we so mm-hmm. yeah yeah absolutely so <laughs> so i'm gonna start i like to start by maybe sharing a story about you uh oh you know, i like to start podcasts like that but oh uh you were actually one of my first ever professors in my master's degree hmm. and i remember emailing you because there was um so i i did the orthodox school of theology i did my mdiv through trinity college in toronto yeah. yes. but there was also there's also the sheptitsky institute of eastern christian studies at, mm-hmm. uh, at saint michael's i'm not sure where everything stands now but at least mm-hmm. four years ago that was that was the case yeah and uh, father jeffrey recommended i take a course with you at the um at Sheptitsky Institute, and I I signed up for it, but there was like a bit of a mix-up at some point. I remember emailing you, and you said, "Well, come on over to the house, and I'll make you an espresso, and we'll we'll talk about everything." And and I just I remember thinking, "Oh, this is great! I'm gonna I'm gonna love this." And yeah, then I I went over because it was in Window House, which was a a house at the University of Toronto there, where the Sheptitsky School was housed. And you made me a coffee. We chatted about the course and about my story and everything. And and then I remember taking the course, and it was, it was a, uh, was it Foundations of Eastern Christian Theology or right. yeah, Foundations, yeah, yeah, and that it really it really was it, it really mm-hmm. set off my degree. Uh, it gave me some foundations, and for me, uh, it allowed me to rethink my own story and my own history of belief, um, and to kind of reevaluate even basic points of my theological thinking and oh. to see, you know, where, where do I really stand and mm-hmm. w- what is really important and what maybe have I been holding on that has maybe been a bit, a bit of a myth. Mm-hmm. Um, Praise one the of the, wow. yeah, yeah. What, one of the things I remember from, from the course was uh, you, you have a heavy sense. Uh, so us Byzantine Orthodox Christians like to think that we are the only Orthodox Christians that exist. Mm-hmm. Right. right. Uh, we we yeah. forget about, you know, the Egyptian Coptic Orthodox Christians. Mm-hmm. We forget about um, the Ethiopian church and the Assyrian church of the East and, and the Eastern Catholic churches. We just forget, we forget about all this. And we, we use the word Orthodox when we actually mean only a certain part of the Orthodox Church, right? And and that was something that I won't um, quote you on that because I don't want you to get in trouble with your bishop. <laughs> right, right. But I mean, he, this is public, so he can listen to whatever. All <laughs> oh, right, sorry. Um, yeah, okay. <laughs> but basically, you, you gave me, uh, you challenged me with thinking about um, 
the this this orthodox version of Christianity in a more holistic way or or a more historically accurate way, perhaps. Um, yeah. So that's just a thank you to you, and and that it helped me in my degree. Prosim, you're welcome. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, before we get into some of your story, Doctor Butcher, would you mind would you mind sharing a bit of what you're doing like now, what what you're teaching or, or where you are now, and then maybe I like to. I'm going to try and start doing plugs at the beginning of an episode. So if you have any books or or whatever it might be, uh, or anything you want to point our listeners towards, this is the, uh, I'll do, we'll do that earlier in the episode. (laughs) Right. Well, unfortunately, because of COVID, um, I don't have any work at present at the Shiptitsky Institute, although I remain remain, uh, affiliated with it. Um, And so uh, this semester I'm teaching as last semester for, uh, an online university called Agora, and it's always been online. It's it's uh, that's the way they operate. They have students in both uh, North America and Egypt and elsewhere. It's under the aegis of the Coptic Orthodox Church of Alexandria, the Egyptian Copts who you mentioned. Uh, but they have um, not only Coptic Orthodox but other Oriental Orthodox students, uh, both Malankar Orthodox, uh, Syriac as well, and they um, have some Eastern Catholic students as well. Uh, particularly, there's a Chaldean Catholic priest who's in one of my classes uh, right now, um, and there I believe this semester we'll have a number of Ethiopian students uh, registering from Ethiopia. And uh, they wanted to increase the diversity, to use a, a popular buzzword, on their, of their faculty and to have more Byzantine representation. Uh, and I uh, have a long-standing relationship with the Coptic Orthodox community. Um, I've been to Egypt and been hosted by them very graciously at a uh, lay school formation they have. They're called uh, the School of Alexandria and have visited the monasteries. Um, this was four years ago. was blessed to go to Egypt. And um, so it's wonderful to have this opportunity to, to work with them and for them and to learn from them because the students are passionate about learning. And if you've ever met um, Copts, you know that they're the real deal when it comes to uh, Christians. Uh, they live with an ongoing uh, reality of persecution and threat of persecution, of violent uh, persecution, martyrdom. And uh, all the students are actually uh, part-time because they all have uh, jobs of one kind or another, whether in the church or or for the most part not in the church, Um, busy professional lives. And yet they're taking these courses simply for their own enrichment because of their love of their faith and their desire to be able to understand and uh, defend their faith uh, in a context in which they are minorities. So um, if anyone would like to know uh, more about Agora University, you can look that up, uh, agora.ac. And um, it's a very exciting enterprise. It's kind of like the Oriental Orthodox answer to either the Shiptesk Institute or the Orthodox School of Theology at Trinity, I would say. Um, I'm also doing an on engaged number of research projects, um, writing a chapter uh, for a book called um, Liturgy as a Philosophical Concern. And I'm looking at uh, liturgical singing and, and as uh, in relationship to the question of beauty uh, and uh, as sort of a criterion for how we understand um, aesthetics. Um, and I'm working also on a festschrift. So that is a, a book in honor of someone. And that would be for my doctor, Vater Peter Galadza. Um, and there's a number of scholars contributing to that. Um, 
and I have some guest lectures to prepare for this semester as well. But I'm not full-time employed, and again, that's because of COVID. Last semester, because again, because of COVID and not having full-time work, I completed a, a bicycle, a solo bicycle odyssey, um, uh, cycling and camping from, uh, from Ottawa to Vancouver. And that was a wonderful uh, experience. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah. Um, yeah, it's a been journey, a journey through the wilderness. Indeed, indeed. Yeah. Um, so maybe let's get into a bit of your story. I think at first blush, when I saw the name Dr. Brian Butcher as a professor of theology and theological topics, you know, my mind created a bit of a caricature of like an older, um, maybe perhaps a little out of shape uh older <laughs> white man with a giant white beard oh, yeah. that's you know but yeah. but you are not those things uh, as a package so i'm i'm wondering can can we get a bit of your story how, how, so you you are a member of um eastern catholicism is is that how you would put it yeah, so I'm I'm a subdeacon in the Ukrainian Greco-Catholic Church. That's the official name of our church, a Ukrainian mm-hmm. Greco-Catholic. Uh, in Canada, we commonly just say Ukrainian Catholic. Mm-hmm. Um, and depending on who you're talking to, people have some sense of what that means or, or not. Uh, and so sometimes we'll use other terms depending on who we're talking to. I might say I'm a Byzantine Rite Catholic or just a Greek Catholic or Greco-Catholic. Or I, I might even say I'm Orthodox in communion with Rome, um, depending on whether I want to ingratiate myself to someone or offend them, um, right, right. or just make a good joke. Uh, <laughs> so, because everyone knows that uh, if anyone who knows Eastern Catholics knows, we are not as Orthodox as we ought to be. We are trying; it's a real work in progress. So, we need our brothers and sisters in uh, the Eastern Orthodox churches, such as yourself, to inspire us and to hold us to account. Yeah, the the way I've described Eastern Catholicism to people who are unaware of this whole uh, area of Christianity is that I will say, and you can sort of correct me if maybe I should be adjusting how I describe this, but for (laughs) people who aren't familiar with the situation, I say that um, Eastern, like let's say Ukrainian Catholics see themselves as Orthodox Christians who have a dual citizenship, that they are, Mm -hmm. that they are that they are Orthodox mm-hmm. and they are Catholic. Mm-hmm. No, that's very elegant. Yeah. That's very elegant and also a very gracious way of putting it, Ocha. And um, it's a credit to you and to your own charity that you can see it that way because um, the somebody who, that, uh, another way of seeing that, one, one way of seeing it is that one has, a, as you say, dual citizenship or a, a double loyalty. Somebody might, reverse that to say you have a loyalty to neither right that you mm. a double infidelity it's uh, like having two wives <laughs> yeah that's right yes, yes, yes. which has not generally been allowed in christianity unless you were the emperor of ethiopia and they took inspiration from the polygamy yeah. of the old testament and thought well if solomon was the wisest man in the world and he had more than one wife maybe that's worth emulating but um yes mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yes i can see why as a married person you're, you're <laughs> stuck with one my friend I, I got one wife, one wife, as the New Testament says, husband of one wife. <laughs> um, yeah, so so you're you're in the Eastern Catholic Church, but butcher does not strike me as like a Ukrainian last name. So so do you have any amount of Ukrainian heritage in you or is this something that you plugged into as an outsider, so to speak? 
Yeah, definitely. Um, I don't have any Ukrainian heritage that I know of. Uh, butcher is not an anglicization of Bucherski or Bucherovsky or something like that. Um, I came into the Ukrainian Greco-Catholic Church in my university years, my undergrad years at uh, McGill in Montreal. And at the time, it, it almost uh, it happened in, a, in what seemed somewhat random fashion, but I can I'd later look back on and, and see it as providential. Um, I fell in love with the uh, Byzantine tradition. I had a uh, friend, uh, actually very well-established um, Orthodox scholar. You may know him, Brandon Gallagher. Um, he is, teaches in uh, right now in Essex. Uh, he's very good friends with Father Jeffrey. And uh, he took me to Vespers at the OCA Parish in Montreal, the sign of the Theotokos. Uh, at the time, it was served by Father uh, John um, Chachuk, uh, who was the son-in-law of Alexander Schmemann. And they had a wonderful lending library. And so I started attending Vespers there back in 1995, I think, um, and borrowing books from their library. And so I was very drawn to being Orthodox and was seriously considering that as a prospect. And around the same time, I got involved uh, with the Newman Center at McGill, which is the uh, Catholic chaplaincy at McGill University. Um, and fell in love with with those people as well, and uh, not and started actually serving as cantor and pianist um, for the masses there, and becoming quite intrigued with Catholic history um, and intellectual tradition. And uh, so I I had been raised as an evangelical Protestant uh, Baptist, son of uh, missionaries and uh, Baptist pastor, and PK as we say, pastor's kid. Um, and so I found myself wanting to be Orthodox and also wanting to be Catholic. Uh, and uh, if only there was a church that if you know. <laughs> only that's right. And uh, the um, I, I came across the ministry of a woman named Catherine Doherty, the foundress of a community called Madonna House. It's all around the world now, but its mother house is in Cumbermere, Ontario. She was a Russian, but her uh, father was uh, Dutch. A Roman Catholic, her mother was Russian Orthodox. And uh, in learning about her life and her ministry and then this vision of this community that she founded, in which um, eventually through the agency of a fairly well-known Melkite archbishop named Joseph Raya, uh, they were able to develop a, sort of the, the, a, a practice of breathing with both lungs, as John Paul II would say, but long before the term was au courant. And they would serve both the Byzantine and the Roman liturgies, and they would practice the Jesus prayer as well as the rosary. They were strong on the contemplation and, and writing of icons and the practice of pustinia, hermitage, and so forth. And uh, so I was very taken with this idea that it was possible to have East and West in, in harmony. Um, and... So I looked into the Melkite Greek Catholic Church, which is, for those who don't know, is a, is a Byzantine-right church of, of Middle Eastern extraction. It's the sister church of the Antiochian Orthodox. Um, but in Montreal at the time, it was a very, very um, Arabophone. So the liturgy was entirely in Arabic. And if you didn't have Arabic, you were really at a loss. Um, now they have served liturgies in French, entirely in French, and perhaps also in English as well. Um, but having looked into that and being a young father, um, I was apprehensive at how I could raise a family in a, in a context in which there was a very different cultural matrix. And I wasn't sure if there would be sort of space for, for myself um, and, and my children. And um, uh, 
uh, and their mother's Korean. So it, we were very sort of culturally mixed uh, ourselves and coming into that context would have been a challenge. And the Roman Catholic priest at the Newman Center was friends with the Ukrainian Catholic priest. They served together as chaplains in a hospital in Montreal. And he said, sent me to talk to that man of blessed memory, Father Roman Lahola. Father Roman, to his credit, said, this is an unusual situation that you're in and unusual aspirations you have, but why don't you go talk to these people in Ottawa? Uh, there's a place called the Shaptitsky Institute, and you might get some answers there. And to make a long story short, um, I went to the Institute. I met Father Peter Galadza, who I mentioned earlier, the former director of our uh, Shaptitsky Institute. Uh, and that sealed the deal for me. I, I had a three-hour conversation with him, I think, the first time I met him, and I hit him with every question I had. Um, and uh, by the end of it, I was I was convinced that the Ukrainian Catholic Church was a place that I could be, uh, and I could raise my family, and a place where I could be uh, Orthodox in communion with Rome. And the piece de resistance was that uh, Father Peter, uh, who is actually your one of your relations, uh, said to me, and look, by the way, if this is just a stepping stone for you, you know, to orthodoxy, if you kind of need to use us on your way to orthodoxy, that's okay too. <laughs> I thought, well, I, I really appreciate that kind of, um, uh, you know, that kind of welcome in which there's no no strings attached, so to speak. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think I think people can smell when there are strings attached, mm-hmm. right? Like there's sometimes even our our evangelistic spirit can be dishonest right sometimes our evangelistic desires for other people say more about us than they do about the other person right Mm -hmm. Um, i know i need somebody to be converted into my faith so that i so it acts as validation for my own faith Mm -hmm. right perhaps i'm a little insecure about it right Mm -hmm. uh can we go a little bit earlier in your story you mentioned a bit about coming from an evangelical Baptist home and uh, and that it was also a missionary home. Could you speak a bit about the role of faith in your home growing up? Yeah, I mean, my my mother now has passed away. Um, my father's still living as a widower, uh, retired from ministry. And um, I was actually adopted. So that's, again, part of the complexity of my identity is my name is a very Anglo name, but I was adopted at 12 days old. My parents, who had been missionaries in India before I were, was born, um, wanted to adopt. Uh, they had already adopted one child in India and had one of their own. And when they came back to Canada, they wanted to adopt another child ideally of Indian background, because they knew that in the 70s, depending on where you were in Canada, and they were in Winnipeg, Manitoba, um, not every family who was interested in adoption would be interested in adopting a child who was racially distinct from themselves, right? Because adoption wasn't as, uh, not everyone is willing to acknowledge that they've adopted a child. uh, And that's changed a lot in in my lifetime. But um, uh, so my parents put themselves forward as people would be willing to adopt a child of Indian background. Um, and when I came up for adoption, and that's itself a story, um, so they they adopted me at 12 days, just in the two weeks. So I was raised in Winnipeg till I was 10, and my dad was a Baptist pastor. But he was a kind of um, pastor who was rather eclectic in drawing on things that he found uh, good or true or beautiful in other traditions. So we grew up practicing Advent, for example, in our family and observing the 12 days of Christmas unto Epiphany. And if you know anything about Baptists, you know that they typically 
um, have not, at least not until very recently, had any regard for the liturgical year outside of, say, Christmas and Easter. Uh, although now it's, you know, gaining steam to you know, observe Advent and even something like Lent and perhaps other things as well. But in our families, we grew up with a, a strong domestic piety, I would say, um, particularly accentuated at, at, at that time of the year. Um, and like many people who grew up in an evangelical church, a strong love of the Bible, emphasis on uh, you know praise and worship, on personal relationship with Christ, um, you know Bible study and uh, youth group and uh, summer Bible camp and, and those kinds of things. Um, so I look back and I'm very very grateful, um, not least because. As an Eastern Christian, we sing all these hymns in our liturgy that are full of typological allusions or references to biblical things. And I think much of it goes over the head of Eastern Christians themselves because we, in general, lack that familiarity with the Bible, which is part and parcel of what it means to grow up as an evangelical. Um, so, yeah, so I, I grew up as a pastor's kid till I was 10. And then my parents um, took on another missionary endeavor after that in Pakistan, Um obviously adjacent to India, but a very different cultural context because it's Islamic, where they had been before was predominantly Hindu. Um, and so I spent two years in Pakistan and um, both that was my ex first exposure to sort of all the cultures in the world, not least that of Pakistan itself, but then of the many cultures of the children in the boarding school that I attended and the many denominations actually that was uh, that they represented Um And coming back to Canada when I was uh, 12, I then lived in a few different places uh, to complete my adolescence, um, but was still practicing my faith as, a, as an evangelical, as a Baptist. Um, but beginning to ask questions, as most teenagers do, the further I went. And I suppose for some teenagers, asking questions means, you know, becoming rebellious means like leaving your faith and getting into sex, drugs, and rock and roll, or <laughs> whatever the equivalent would be. Uh, for me, it was more like, you know, hanging out with Pentecostals and like trying to figure out whether I should be speaking in tongues to be baptized in the spirit and maybe sneaking into a Presbyterian church or an Anglican church for a service here or there and like trying out liturgy and stuff like that. So that was my, the extent of my being a little bit risque, I have to say. Yeah. So you always had an interest, I guess, in matters to do with the church or did that come more in your adolescence? Um, yeah, no, like, like I think faith was always important to me growing up. I remember being at Bible camp when I was like seven And, uh, you know, the counselor asking me, you know, at the end of the week, like, do you want to accept Christ into your heart as your personal Lord and Savior? And I was like, yeah, but I mean, what will my parents say? <laughs> you know, it's just like, and the counselor's like, well, I, I think, yeah, they'll, they'll probably be pretty happy, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, going to Pakistan raised a lot of questions in my mind about, even as a 10-year-old, just about the nature of faith. Like we lived across the street from a mosque and like they had the call to prayer, right? Every day, five times a day. It was very loud. Um, and at the time it kind of freaked me out, you know, and whereas now I love it. Like <laughs> I find it very in, in, enchanting actually and a, and, a, and a very sober and necessary reminder of the need for my own fidelity in prayer. Um, but at the time it was really weird, you know, like this Baptist kid from Winnipeg and like in the you know, five in the morning, Allahu Akbar, you know, like... <laughs> So, was, uh, so that was a real like opening up of my world. Um, and then when I was 13, my, my sister was killed in a car accident. She was 21. And um, that was my first sort of real experience of tragedy, I th would say. Um, and even though I was only 13, I became a very sober 13 year old in the sense that 
I started asking a lot of deep questions about about life. I mean, when you lose someone who's close to you at that age, it, it you sort of it, it makes you grow up a bit faster, I think, than you would otherwise. And I started um, what I did for many years, and you know, I haven't composed now for many years now. But uh, for many years, I was sort of a singer songwriter. Um, and my, I wrote my first song um, after my sister died, and that sort of became the arts in that sense, particularly music, became an outlet for me to channel um, my grief, but also to express my my faith and my my search for faith. Uh, in that sense, mm, it's still the case, you know. Um, and years later, as a cantor and choir director. Um, in places where I serve now. Um, but yeah, so I think from, especially since the death of my sister, when I was 13, I became very serious and, and preoccupied with questions of faith. Although I wouldn't say that I was so much about the church in that I just didn't know what I didn't know. Right. Like it was about the Bible and about my own faith and sort of being active in the context in which I was my faith and my own church community, my youth group, even my school. Um, but I had no concept of Catholicism or orthodoxy. And whatever I did have was negative, um, as many evangelicals do, stereotypes about, you know, works righteousness or nominalism or or worship of Mary or what have you. And and with with perhaps a few exceptions, which would be like some sense that yeah, Mother Teresa, she was pretty special. You know, she must be a holy person and maybe some other, you know, figures. But um my real awakening, so to speak, to what was out there in Catholicism and Orthodoxy did not really happen until um, my university years, my undergrad years. Although when I went on a student exchange when I was 15 to Germany and then uh, for my gap year to Italy when I was 18, there I got exposed both to, to first in Germany to Lutheran, uh, to the Lutheran Church and uh, in Italy, obviously, to Catholicism. And that began to at least plant some seeds. I was exposed to a very different way of worshipping. I didn't know what to make of it at the time, for sure. Um, but I look back on that now and think, yeah, that, that sort of put a, you know, planted a seed that I could later look back and say, ah, yeah, it had been working its way, you know, growing slowly inside me all those years. You have a wide ranging story in, in terms of the places that you've been, the people that you've met, the the different religious expressions that you've encountered. And I'm wondering if I could get your take on so if, if we went back even a hundred years and, and into the past, people mostly only experienced their version of faith and and you know I, i'm thinking about let's say the small village in ukraine right right, right. You're, yeah. you're not really being exposed to anything else you grew up within this church this yeah. is your entire world you yeah. you're born you get married and you die yeah. within yeah. Yeah. this one church community yeah. Yeah. I, I guess i'm wondering could you reflect a little bit on on the benefits of being able to be exposed to other faiths and other traditions but then also maybe what is lost Huh. when we don't just spend time in one spot? Yeah, very insightful question, Ache. And for those of you listening, you understand why Father Yuri was an exceptionally talented and successful student, because he knows how to ask uh, intelligent and pertinent questions. Uh, and he did that in my class, and I expect in Father Jeffrey's and those other classes that he took. Um, so, yeah, let's start with the latter thing, uh, latter question, because... Um, I've learned, even in, in trying to raise my own children, how difficult it is to not have a sense of a faith community being a given, right? Like that it's, or rather that having faith be a, a given that is reinforced 
in the society and community around you. See, because my kids growing up in the Ukrainian Catholic Church have had, and being a visible minority have had to ask themselves the question, each one has handled it differently. You know, what does it mean for me to be in this church um, and to, to belong to a church that is called Ukrainian Catholic? Like, do you have to be Ukrainian? Should you, should you be Ukrainian? Should you have some connection to or appreciation of Ukrainian uh, heritage? Um, and why, where, why is there a disconnect between our racial and cultural background and our ecclesial location, right? And in a country like Canada, uh, you have so many options, right? So every church is uh, surrounded by so many other kinds of churches of, and communities of other faiths. And there's so many different paths. And so for a child to sort of be faced with all of that, especially through their school system and just what's around in popular culture, not least what's available because through the internet, which was obviously not an issue when you and I were growing up, um, it's overwhelming. I think the choices and so I suppose one can imagine in perhaps a, a romantic kind of way, and it, you can imagine it being an idyllic thing to grow up in a village where like everyone shares the same faith and there's the rhythm of the liturgical year is experienced naturally in a, in a communal manner without it having to be a, a project, something you have to struggle for to work at, not something you have to try to justify and then practice. It's hard enough to practice it, but if you have to be always justifying or establishing the grounds for why you practice something, it's like it's more than twice the work, right? Um, and so to raise children in our pluralistic context, you first, it's almost like you always have to have an eye to persuading your kids and yourself, for that matter, of the viability of following a different path or a distinctive path, let's say, from those of your neighbors and your peers and, and people in your workplace and so forth. But then you also have to try to practice it, right? Um, whereas if we can, without, again, to, let's try not to be romantic about it, certainly people in a more monocultural or homogeneous environment, um, even if they weren't living up to their faith, there's something to be said perhaps for the simplicity or the, there is the straightforwardness of having a a given frame of reference. And I think that sense of being lost um, and not knowing what are the rules is part of why someone like Jordan Peterson, and we should say there isn't really anybody quite like Jordan Peterson. So that's part of why Jordan Peterson, I think has been so successful is he's speaking to a generation, particularly of young men who just don't know what are the rules for life? What are the reference points? What are the norms? Like what are the roles? Like uh, what is the meaning uh, of it all, right? Uh, and uh, homogeneous commun you know, religious communities of one sort or another, whether the the meaning that they provide is ultimately the truth or not, one you know a, a pragmatic argument can be made for how having some sense of meaning is necessary to guide people um, in developing healthy habits and living a you know some kind of balanced lifestyle and achieving a certain level of happiness even a sense apart from the ultimate truth of the propositions that inform that worldview. And I think um, we can see that anyone who's traveled has seen, you know, you go to a place like India, which has a much lower standard of living by and large to say Canada. Um, and yet the people invariably are happy. They're smiling people. Everybody, I can say this from personal experience, having lived in India as well as Pakistan, everybody belongs to somebody. Everyone has a strong sense of where they belong, who their family is, who their tribe is, so to speak, what their faith is, where they fit within the, the society as a whole. Um, and that creates all sorts of pathologies, no doubt, as well. You 
explored in Bollywood and other sources. But I think it, it's it's a different set of problems than we face here, where just people don't know to whom they belong, to what they belong, for what, uh, and they are laboring. Um, and so, yeah, I, I look back and I think, hmm, there's a there's a challenge in that. And so when my, as, you know, one of my children asked me, like, you know, what are we like? Are we this? Are we that? Why can't we just be one thing rather than being this, you know, Korean slash Indian slash French Belgian? Because I'm half Indian and then and half European, French, Belgian, German, and Norwegian specifically. And then my children's mother, they're Kore- Korean, and we belong to the Ukrainian Catholic Church. So it's it is confusing. And I said to my daughter, I said, well, you have the invitation basically to kind of choose that which is most meaningful or salient for you but also to be one of those people who is like a bridge builder between communities because again in our pluralist environment there are many people who retreat into the ghetto of their own community and try to avoid or you know minimize their their contact with others and it takes somebody who can kind of partake in more than one world who can who can feel at home in more than one culture often to introduce one one group to another and and so i suppose I see myself in that sense as a pontifex, you know, it's one of our terms for the Pope, a bridge builder, um, not least being Eastern Catholic, but also because of that, but partly just because of my multicultural background where I feel um, at home in many places, but in no one place like it's in, in, in an exclusive or, or permanent manner. Rather, I, I feel like I'm a bit of a, a pilgrim, I suppose, um, and I can... I can pray, you know, I can pray with the Copts, I can pray with Byzantines, I can pray with the Syro Malankara in India. I spent time there. And each of those places I felt at home in a sense. I felt at home when I went to Ukraine on a couple of a couple of times I've been to Ukraine. And yet also with a bit of a melancholy sense that but I'm not really from there and ultimately it's not my home in the way it might be for someone else. And so there's that that tinge of a sense of uh contingency of the provisionality of that of that uh, of that participation in that reality when i first go started going to other churches i found it difficult to get to a place where i could like say i was visiting that that's what i mean when i first started visiting other churches even whether they be catholic or protestant or whatever um i found it difficult to allow my heart to even enter a stance of prayer in those contexts Mm. wow right Wow. Um, that that I, I, I had a st- kind of a staunch, I had a staunch orthodoxy, so to speak. Interesting. Um, Interesting. And e- even though most of my friends were Protestant Christians mm-hmm. and my extended family were all good practicing Catholic Christians, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I still had a lot of trouble being able to ha- open my heart in those contexts, yeah. right? And, and it took a long time of of interacting with with different christians to know and 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 to be honest there are still some contexts in which i i don't feel comfortable opening up my heart in that kind of way let's say say you're in a particular context and somebody says let's pray right in in some contexts i'm okay to let my my heart open and in some contexts i'm much more reserved and i and i will sit there respectfully and and you know and and try not to think all my judgmental thoughts as much as possible but i'm wondering did did you always have so insightful actually that that, so you've got such a good read on the on the psychological dynamics at work and yeah um so did you were you always did 
is it right for my, when I observe you, I see someone who has an easier time opening up their heart to prayer in different contexts. Hmm. Am I, am I characterizing that right? Or do you also struggle with being able to pray in different contexts? You know, I do. And, and, and I suppose it's a question of like, I've learned other languages metaphorically, well, literally, but metaphorically, right? So I can pray in, I think in any Catholic or Orthodox context, I can sort of adopt the idiom or, or like, okay, tell myself, okay, this is the language quote unquote that we're speaking now. Um, but I do struggle in certain, when I return from time to time to evangelical contexts, because it's still so close to me, um, there's a sense in which I want to be able to, because in like my family and family members, like my, my, my father, for example, and, and others, I want to be able to sort of jump right in. But as a theologian, I have like all sorts of questions. I also have become, um, yeah, there's this sort of whole critical dimension, which it's hard to set aside. Uh, and then it's, it's hard to know what is the appropriate, how, how, what is, what is a kind of, um, to put it, let's do an analogy. Like, it's like, how do you know if you're a married man, you can have other female friends, but you don't want to cross the line of a kind of intimacy that's not appropriate. That doesn't mean you don't hug them or, or kiss them three times or whatever, or it doesn't mean you don't talk to them. But even if it's not a physical thing, even if it's a question of like um, sharing your thoughts you or your emotions, there's a certain a reserve that needs to kick in as a discipline, right? If you're a married man. And so I think the same thing happens at a certain level with church, right? Like if you have a certain ecclesial identity and liturgical belonging, you don't want to be almost, as it were, like promiscuous. And it, it almost sounds a bit scandalous to put it that way. But I'll, I'll give you an example of where this, this occurred to me. I was visiting my father's uh, about a year ago. Uh, and I went to his Baptist church. Um, and they don't celebrate communion very often, but they do it like once a month. Eh? And uh, so I went, I went to Divine Liturgy somewhere earlier in the morning and then I went with him to his Baptist church just to show you know solidarity and honor him and and uh, it's a very dynamic wonderful faith community uh, and if I were a Baptist it was the kind of Baptist church I would want to belong to right um, but when it came time for communion um, what they decided to do was um, the way they're doing it that day at least was they were passing them yeah I think it's what they normally do they, they were passing the platter of you know pieces of bread around and you were to to pass it to your neighbor uh, and you were to and and the presiding minister was said and you should say this is the body of christ or some or some words like that and that that troubled me like he's sort of telling us well hold on it does it not matter then what you say like so first i was sort of busy processing that but then there was problem like i don't think i can take that not only can i not partake because it's too close to the reality that I already partake in as a Catholic. In other words, if I really believe that in the Eucharist, this is the, the body and blood of Christ, then if this is what I think are essential elements in that, such as the, the you know, the sacrificial priesthood and the, uh, you know, the uh, liturgical form that is, you know, of apostolic origin, and we can talk about that, but, uh, you know, the essential elements of what makes a liturgy a liturgy in a Catholic Orthodox sense. Um, if those things are absent, then in what sense am I being 
honest in telling my neighbor, this is the body of Christ, even if I'm not partaking, you see. So I was imagining how this would play out when the platter came to me. I thought, well, I can't partake, but someone's going to pass it to me and say, this is the body of Christ. And I could either say, "Mm -hmm," or if you think so, or good for you, or you know what I mean? Or like, I pray that it be to you unto some type of communion in a spiritual way that I can't quite understand how God can nonetheless be present to you outside of the norms of the sacraments that he's laid down, the holy mysteries, etc. Whatever, I I could think of that. But if I had to then pass it to my dad, who was sitting next to me and say, this is the body of Christ, it was like, that's going to be weird because not only am I not partaking in this, but then I'm like telling to someone else something that I don't actually think is the case. I could say, this reminds you, this should remind you of the body of Christ, right? But I don't believe this is the body of Christ in the same way that when I, as, as a subdeacon on certain occasions, have in fact had to distribute communion in our church and tell people, you know, the servant of God receives the most precious, most pure, most holy body and blood of our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and for life everlasting. Amen. So it was, it was, it was, it's, it surprised me how uncomfortable I felt. Um, like I thought, yeah, I get around. I've read ecumenical guy. I worship in a lot of places, and then on and the rest of the service was fine. You know, I sang along with the hymns, listened to a very intelligent forty-five minute homily. You know, it was really great. Um, and but it was on the communion start. I'm like, this is just I don't know what to do with this. And so I got up. Um, my cousin was also there, and I just said to my dad, my cousin, I said, I just need to stand at the back for this. And afterwards, my cousin was like, well, that was weird. Like, what did, why did you have to, like, leave, you know? I'm like, you just – it's hard to explain, but I said, when I am both receiving and administering the, this in a Catholic context, it is just understood and practiced so differently that – the very proximity of this and the very fact that it seems like a simulacrum, you know, like in some sense it approaches that even to the point that, you know, your minister was saying to say, this is the body of Christ, but then almost taking away with one hand, what he gave with the other by saying, or you could say something else like that. It's just, it's too, there's too much um, ambiguity um, not to say kind of an ambivalence. And I just, I didn't know how I could sort of be present authentically. And, so yeah, that that's happened from time to time where it, and I suppose it's a salutary reminder that, you know, against sort of some postmodern idea that we just identify as whatever we want to identify as, we construct our identity, you know, at, 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 at our own whims, and there's nothing given in our identity. There's nothing that's sort of settled or that resists this kind of plasticity or malleability. It was a good reminder that no one cannot belong to everything simultaneously, you know? You can't just sort of be everywhere present and filling all things like the Holy Ghost, you know? There is a contingency, a finitude, a sense of limitation that, and that is for our own sanity, um, and that you have to honor if you take anything seriously, right? The person I realized afterwards who could just kind of go with that would be at a greater, greater, uh, let's see, a, uh, a different level of sort of, of of multilingualism than I am the person who could you know just yeah when I'm with the Hindus I can kind of grow, groove with that I'm with the Buddhists I groove with that I'm with the Muslims I groove with that I suppose there probably are people like that whether Unitarians or Baha'i or maybe something else I think I'm I am to a certain extent like that like I can go to a mosque and I'll sit at the back and be very admiring and impressed by the prayer and even have a prayerful disposition but I won't make the prostrations in the simultaneously with them. I won't say the things that are being said. And I realize that even within Christianity, where, you know, I obviously believe these Baptists have a true faith in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they 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 baptize um, in their own understanding to do what the mind of the church intends, even if I don't think they fully understand what 
the significance of the mystery of a holy mystery of baptism. But I can recognize these people as Christians. But even then, there was this sense that, yeah, I'm not, you know, I'm not positioned to just be able to p- participate. And I can respect in turn why uh, an Orthodox who comes to, say, a Greek Catholic church might feel like it's identical to our service. And precisely because of how close it is, I can't participate in it. You know, it's ironic. You'd think the closer it is to what you know, the easier it would be. And it's sometimes like that, but sometimes it has the opposite effect, that precisely because of how similar it is, you feel the tension between a similarity that is not yet an identity. In visual effects, there's a term called the uncanny valley, where you start getting your, your the vi- people who do visual effects, let's say of the human face, right. start to get to a point where they are very close to actually emulating a real human face. Huh. But the closer you get to actually it being photo real, yeah. the more weird and like you get this weird sense in your when you're watching like uh, uh the classic movie people talk about is the polar express oh, yeah, if you yeah. watch the faces of the characters in the cgi movie polar express mm-hmm. they're 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 real but they're not and it's weird right and mm-hmm. and it would be easier if they were just cartoon squiggly lines <laughs> Um, I I wonder if like, let's say in my experience of like uh, being an Orthodox Christian going to an Eastern Catholic liturgy, it's almost that uncanny valley of like, oh, it's close, but it's there's (laughs) something just a little bit off here. Um, We have have two and a half, three minutes. We can go a little over time for the public episode, Dr. Butcher. Um, And actually in uh, in the private episode, uh, we're going to get into the topic of we're going to solve the whole Eastern Catholic and Orthodox thing. We're just Thank God sp- we get something done under this COVID, you know? That's, that's good to know. So we're going to talk about like why, uh, <laughs> particularly I, I'm curious to investigate some of your thinking on why it might be essential to have this Bishop of Rome as, mm-hmm. you know, the first among equals in, mm-hmm. in, in the church. I'm not even sure if that's a term that you would use for for the Pope. Mm-hmm. Uh, sure, sure. We, we, we can investigate that that all later. Okay. Uh, the, the centralness of, of the Pope. Um, but to take us to the end of the public episode, I'm wondering if you would be willing to share um, perhaps a story. Um, so if I say the words like a memorable experience of prayer, hmm. uh, w- whether it be positive or negative, hmm. um, a memorable experience of prayer, yeah. um, is is there a story that comes to mind? And, and if so, would you be willing to share it? Hmm. Yeah, well, there's there's several for sure. Um, I'll tell you one that doesn't doesn't e- I can't easily fit it into. I, I don't really know what to do with it even many years later. But I spent when I was in my university undergrad at McGill um, before I became uh, I grew Catholic. Um, I worshipped at an Anglican church, and it was sort of a low Anglican, as we say, or evangelical, or charismatic actually. Um, and so it was a place where they really expected people to have these. Um, unusual experiences. In other words, they would think it is usual for people to have what normally be seen as unusual spiritual experiences, being slain in the spirit and having prophecies and speaking in tongues and so forth. And so I I went through the whole cycle of kind of skepticism about that as coming from a Baptist background, right? But there was one time, uh, a Sunday evening Eucharist, um, where, you know, you, you can ask people afterwards to pray over you, you know, and I remember asking these two guys, or man and woman, maybe it was, uh, to pray over me because, you know, whether just for some sort of healing or guidance, I don't remember what the specific motivation was, without any particular sense that, you know, or even desire that I have some particular experience. Um, 
And it was really weird because um, I had this incredible, this tangible physical sensation of um, that wash over me of this this peace, but it was like beyond peace because it really was psychosomatic. Like it was, uh, if that's the right word. Like it's something I felt with my. No, I, I think that's the right word. How do I put it? it? It's something I felt with my whole being. It was a kind of quivering, a kind of vibrating almost. Uh, and I and remember they like I just was sort of just like like kind of hovering. And I think for and I lost track of time. And I think at some point I heard someone's voice say, do you want to like lie down or something? You know, I'm like, yeah, you know, and so I lay down and it just, and it must've lasted like 20 minutes, half an hour or something like that. But it really felt like this, like the closest thing I've ever experienced to kind of like a radiation therapy, but I knew that it was spiritual, but I felt it as fundamentally physical and it was weird. And I don't know that I've ever felt anything quite like that since and i hadn't been drinking or doing drugs before or anything there was no explanation for why but i came away and i remember journaling about it thinking yeah um i think i think that was a charismatic experience uh, i think i was being slain in the spirit and i'm not sure if i would recommend that to people or go looking for that or uh, i just think that it's a it's a grace and i'm glad thank you lord i i think as a reminder, you're real. Um, but um, you probably don't want me to, you know, you're probably not gonna be doing that all the time or anything, you know, like that. And uh so um yeah, I mean when I, the other closest things happened to me is, you know, in other times is there have been, and I've received the Eucharist, I don't know how many times since you know I became Catholic in 1988. And sometimes you you experience, as it were, nothing physically, right? But there have been moments too where I've received the Eucharist and it feels like fire, you know, and you feel like, yeah. St. Ephraim calls it, you know, I think a a living coal. You're like, yeah, I get that. And I don't, I shouldn't even say anything because probably if I say anything, like I'm already cheapening the experience, you know, (laughs) like, um, and so right now I'm not talking about any particular experience, but I just know that it's happened where I'm like, thank you, Lord. Just remind you, you're real. This is, this is all true. I'm powerful. And, um, I have to kind of now like, like live up to this reality. It was not something that's to be taken as some pornographic voyeurs to go and say, hey, look at this, I experienced this. It's rather this is given to me so that I kind of leave, you know, you know, go forth in peace, so to speak. Like, you know, so I think anyone who who who, you know, please God, everyone has had some of these quote quote codec moments where in prayer where you're kind of like, it makes the other the 99 times that you feel like the dryness. You have that one moment where the spring erupts or there's a well sort of thing. And it's like God's way of saying, like, keep going. I'm, I'm still here. I'm still with you. But I don't want to spoil you. I want you to you know, stretch and grow and, and develop the muscles and the faith to not, you know, as Jesus said, blessed are those who haven't seen to Thomas, right? And, and yet believe. So, yeah. You've just finished listening to the first half of this interview. Find out how to access the second half by visiting my website, pryingpriest.com. We'll see you next time. Say, why would you look outside yourself when you have all of the world inside?